Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I am the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. In this episode, we're taking a look at Russia's social media war against the United States, assault on our democracy, and some options our government may use to combat this battle between facts and fakes. Our guest is Dr. Seth Jones. Dr. Jones holds the Harold Brown Chair as the director of the Transnational Threats Project and is senior advisor to the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. He also serves as an adjunct professor at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Additionally, Seth is an author with books that look at counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, some of which include Waging Insurgent Warfare, In the Graveyard of Empires, and Hunting in the Shadows. His latest release, A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War Struggle in Poland, is addressed in this episode. So, let's welcome Dr. Seth Jones. Welcome, Seth Jones, to our show. Before we begin with our conversation, I just wanted to know, and I'm sure our listeners do too, what is your background and who are you and and why are you on the show today? Well, I teach at the Center for Homeland Defense at the Naval Postgraduate School. I focus mostly on terrorism-related issues. I had served as a civilian in United States Special Operations overseas in places like Afghanistan, as well as at Special Operations Headquarters in Tampa, Florida, and the uh, work for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations in the Pentagon and uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. So have spent considerable time working on clandestine activity that U.S. Special Operations do, whether it's targeted strikes or working with partners overseas. And as part of that, though, as part of the clandestine side, um, became quite interested in the work of our adversaries, including the Russians, on uh, clandestine and other covert activities. So not just their buildup of conventional forces, but also the use of their intelligence, cyber, special operations forces to pursue foreign policy decisions. So this book is really built off part of the my own experience in working at the covert and clandestine level. Wonderful. And speaking of the book, uh, you do have a book coming out, a, a covert action, Reagan, the CIA and the Cold War struggle in Poland. Um, it's going to be released by Norton, and I believe it's September 2018 is when we should be able to expect it. Yes. The book is, uh, it is, it's called A Covert Action, and it really looks at historical Cold War activities by the Russians, the U.S. response in the 1980s. And I think, as anyone that reads it will note pretty quickly, there are a number of lessons in dealing with homeland security threat by Russian and other adversaries inside of the United States and also outside of the United States. Disinformation campaigns, propaganda, including on social media. There are clearly differences between the Cold War and today, but there are a lot more similarities than I had initially anticipated. That's interesting. So their playbook might have been updated, but not necessarily changed too much from today and back in the 1980s, I take it. Right. Just to start to get into this a little bit more detail, 
During the Cold War, the Soviets, particularly the KGB, the primary intelligence service within the Soviet Union, the external intelligence service, established a series of measures that it called active measures, which were intended to influence populations across the world. They were to benefit Moscow and its ideology and to undermine the U.S., its primary adversary, and its allies. So the KGB conducted several types of activities. It established front groups to funnel money to political parties and non-governmental organizations, including in the United States. KGB did give money to political parties in the U.S. They were mostly parties like the Communist Party of the United States, but also to non-governmental organizations like the Nuclear Freeze Movement. The Soviets uh, conducted covert broadcast radio and other types of programs. They orchestrated a pretty impressive series of information and disinformation campaigns. And they also conducted some specific targeted assassination. But, you know, much like today, Moscow had a very aggressive, forward-leaning, proactive information warfare campaign to support their foreign policy interests overseas and to undermine their adversaries, particularly the United States. And I think that is what people often forget now when we look at Russian involvement in the U.S. today in U.S. debates and U.S. elections, is that the Russians have been doing this since at least the Cold War. This is not new. What is new, as we'll talk about a little later, is some of the technology that has evolved. The fact that they're doing this and how they're doing it, there are a lot of similarities. In fact, Kremlin playbook from today is in many ways a direct result of the Kremlin playbook during the Cold War. Okay, well, taking that into account, did in the 1980s, and since your book was based uh, during the Reagan administration, what type of measures did the Reagan administration take to identify or analyze and then maybe come up with some course of action to counter the messaging that the Soviet Union was doing? Well, so there are a couple of specific examples that I think highlight what the Soviets were doing, and then and then uh, I'll get into the Reagan response. So they had forgeries. They had a number of forgeries. They forged U.S. government letters, for example, that were supportive of Moscow foreign policy efforts. So there was a forged document, for example, from the Deputy Secretary of Commerce, the U.S. De- Deputy Secretary of Commerce, advocating a much more positive relationship with Soviet and broader Warsaw Pact countries that was supposedly leaked to the press in the 1980s. It was entirely forged by the KGB. So it looked like the U.S., at least in its inner discussions, was much more open to a stronger relationship with the Soviets than it actually was. They also had a serious disinformation campaign. They put out advertisements and paid for them obviously didn't attribute it to the KGB, on pushing back against new U.S. missiles in Europe, uh, including nuclear missiles. Uh, They tied the AIDS epidemic to uh, U.S. laboratories in a U.S. proactive approach to um, infect populations in Africa. This is obviously all a disinformation campaign. It was not true. But they put it out in multiple news sources. And I think that's was common in the Cold War, and it's common today, where they'll use multiple news sources, push out a lot of information so that individuals will see it in multiple locations, and it will increase the possibility that they might actually believe it. What the U.S. did in response is it did create an active measures working group 
that in the 1980s that identified all of these examples of disinformation, these forgeries, and pushed out that information to the American public that these specific examples were forgeries. They weren't true. Uh, so it was essentially educating the American population that um, these specific Soviet active measures were false. They were propaganda. They were disinformation. The U.S. also did a whole range of other proactive uh, actions. It established uh, in the Cold War and used pretty significantly Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, along with the Voice of America, to push out U.S. information to audiences in the Eastern Bloc, in Poland or East Germany or even the Soviet Union more broadly, uh, that was viewed as, um, you know, these these the governments in these countries were state-run. They had state-run media. So this was information that their state-run media was not supporting. Um, the big covert action campaign um, that I cover in the book is a decision to provide not weapons, but money for an information warfare campaign to the Soviet labor union solidarity, really a, more than a labor union. It was more of a political opposition group. And it was being crushed by both the Soviets and the Polish regime. And it needed to stay alive. It was one of the few democratic movements that we saw in Eastern Europe in the early 1980s. The U.S., the CIA in particular, with Reagan's support, helped it ensure that it could run an information campaign about democratic steps, uh, undermine what the regime was doing. So the U.S. provided everything from money for printer cartridges and duplicator machines to ink and paper. The U.S. was proactive, pushing back on a whole range of areas, um, identifying Soviet forgeries and disinformation, and then also proactively pushing information out. It was a give and take between Moscow and Washington that was pretty impressive. It was it was really an information warfare campaign that went back and forth between both capitals. Wow. So the information campaign or that component of the Cold War and resources dedicated by the U.S., how does that differ from what we're doing today to combat the misinformation campaign from Russia? And and is there any lessons that we can actually learn uh, from that time that we maybe aren't applying today that we can? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, from the Russian perspective, there are a lot of similarities. Some of the distinctive features of the contemporary model for Russian propaganda are high volume and, and multi-channel information. That is, they push out large amounts of information on multiple forums, social media, and the internet more broadly, radio, television, print media. It's rapid, it's continuous, it's repetitive, so you're hearing similar themes. Um, it generally lacks a commitment to objective reality or even a commitment to consistency. It doesn't have to be true. Uh, they just want to push information out. And much like during the Cold War, for example, you know, there are, there are similarities, even types of information. So the Soviets helped, uh, they, they downed a, uh, an airliner, much like they were involved in uh, doing with Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, which was taken down. It was on, it was on en route from the Netherlands. And it was shot down by Russian-backed rebels in Ukraine. The Russian media campaign is a disinformation campaign, and it was pushed out on multiple sources of information. Was it, it questioned whether it was Russian-backed rebels that took it down? We questioned what was on board the aircraft, and there were civilians 
And we know that from all of the newspaper reporting, the assessments that were done by governments, including the Dutch government. But they questioned whether there were weapons on board the airplane. They questioned whether that it was really military soldiers on the airplane. They questioned whether it was even shot down at all. I mean, maybe it was the Ukrainian government that shot it down. And it pushed out that information on the multiple sources. So it was really to get people to wonder what was really happening and to question reality and perceptions of reality. Unfortunately, unlike during the Cold War, the U.S. today has really struggled with a coordinated response across the government. And part of it is that the Russian campaign in the 2016 elections has been tied up into politics. I mean, the the reality is that the Russians prosecuted a very effective information campaign during the American 2016 elections. Whether it caused one candidate to win or not is in part, in my view, beside the point. The issue is they meddled. They directly meddled and they tried to influence. And they've been doing it in a range of different forms since. The U.S. response (laughs) has been pretty weak. I mean, it's really not hit hit back the way the Reagan administration did with an offensive campaign, much like QR Helpful, which was the campaign in Poland, or the Books Program, another CIA covert program focused on undermining Russian power and pushing back against Russian influence. U.S. has generally not done that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, in many ways, it's grown closer to Russia. So we don't have an active measures working group that's focused on highlighting the kind of information that the Reagan administration highlighted to the American public. We don't have a number of government officials outlining what the Russians are doing domestically in the United States and on social media. We don't have an effective policy towards highlighting what the Russians are doing, and we don't have an effective policy on hitting back hard. So I think we're behind the eight ball at this point. Uh, in our proactive response to a very significant Russian cyber campaign in the United States. Okay, well, that does give a lot of great lessons learned and some possible courses of action. But in order to implement those, um, I'll go back to post 9-11. We had probably one of the largest, well, we had the Department of Homeland Security established and one of the largest reorganizations of our government and all in an effort to combat terrorism. Can we maybe take this system that's been established to counterterrorism, apply it to, say, interstate adversaries? And, and um, if so, what are, what are we missing currently to maybe provide a more effective counter to the threat of misinformation? I mean, you, you did just outline a lot of those things, but can we actually take those lessons learned and apply it to our infrastructure that we have today? Yeah, I think it's a very, very good question. After 9-11, the U.S., agreed, essentially, its government, and and I think over time, its population agreed that the terrorism threat that presented itself on 9-11, that struck the targets in New York City, in Washington, and the airliner that went down in Pennsylvania, that was a threat. Now, people argued about how serious of a threat is and whether the resources that ended up being put in uh, were were we're at the same level as the degree of threat. So some argue that we pushed in too many resources, a few that we pushed in too few or took us too little time or uh, too much time to, to make those changes. But in the end, the U.S. 
government and its population essentially agreed that the terrorism problem was a threat, and it was a national threat, and that it had largely been misunderstood, and that terrorists had identified a, a gap or a seam in U.S. security and had exploited it. And so in response, what we saw is the government began to restructure itself. So it, it um, tried to make itself more efficient by putting together a Department of Homeland Security. We've seen plenty of other countries do take similar steps. The Canadians then, in response, partly in response, established a Public Safety Canada Department, much along those lines. The U.S. created a National Counterterrorism Center, or NCTC, which pulled together individuals from multiple agencies in order to share information, an issue which had been identified pre-9-11 as contributing to the 9-11 attacks, a failure to share adequately information across agencies. The U.S. established joint terrorism task forces and fusion centers at the state and local level to attempt to bring in more folks between the local and the state level and then connect them to national bodies and organizations like the FBI. So there was a broader effort to not just fund, but to reorganize the U.S. structure to deal with the terrorism problem. I think the biggest fundamental difference right now between the terrorism threat and response after 9-11 and the Russian, and one could broaden it to include Chinese or Iranian or other adversaries, the difference is that there is substantial disagreement on the degree of the Russian threat, and it's political, that the Russian involvement in propaganda and disinformation in the United States is generally tightly intertwined and entangled with Republicans and Democrats, with disputes over the outcome of the 2016 presidential elections in the United States. So there is not a lot of agreement on the degree of the threat. And I think that has held, that, that, that has prevented significant changes right now in the U.S. for dealing with it, especially at an interagency level. I think the step to take is to stop arguing about whether the 2016 activity by the Russians affected one candidate or the other and primarily to understand what the Russians are doing and to understand the impact. And I think one of the things that is striking really about Russian activity is how much they're involved in multiple sides of multiple issues. Their goal is not to support a Republican or a Democratic candidate today. We know that. Their goal is to sow discord and divisiveness in the United States. And the Wall Street Journal just did a recent analysis that identified Russian troll activity online. And what they found even recently was that they are on all sides of issues. That is, they've supported Russian troll and bot activity against Donald Trump and for Donald Trump, against the gun lobby and for the gun lobby. And one could pick a whole range of other examples in the U.S. that have become politically divisive, their objective through these kinds of disinformation campaigns is to exploit vulnerabilities, political and other vulnerabilities and seams and divisiveness in the U.S. and to continue to exploit it. And I think the political situation in the U.S. has given them many opportunities to do that. So 
Russia themselves are not actually creating any of the the uh, the problems that were that are constantly coming up and the divisive the divisiveness. What, what it sounds like they're doing is taking homemade issues, issues that are already existing here, and exploiting both sides to f- cause further div- uh, divisiveness within the U.S. So what? Th- that's that's exactly what they're doing. Okay, and so what what that brings me uh, a thought in my mind is that we've always we talk about fake news or we talk about facts or that's your that's what your beliefs are. So we've, we're moving from a fact based discussion to something that's more a civil discourse through social media campaigns. So what we'd have in the past is trying to understand where it originated from, and these situations are just being exacerbated more on the lines of whatever's getting the most tweets. Is that really what they're trying to do here is just perpetuate the divisiveness that's in our country today? Yeah, I mean, from a strategic perspective, the Russians, I mean, they're adversaries. Let's be let's be frank about this. In the, in the U.S. national security strategy and the national defense strategy that have been published in the last couple of months have been pretty clear about this. The Russians are a competitor. And one way adversaries like this compete is one of their goals is to expand their influence and at the same time to uh, weaken their rivals. So they've expanded their influence in many ways or tried to. They've built power projection capabilities and bases in Syria in support of the Assad regime. They've been working with sub-state actors in Libya that the U.S. had at one point. They're attempting to get involved in more countries in the Middle East and in South and Central Asia. They've provided some assistance to the Taliban against the U.S. in Afghanistan. So big picture, the Russians are competing militarily. They're attempting to compete economically, although they they still are relatively weak compared to the U.S. economically. But they're also competing with the U.S. on the information side. And one way to weaken the U.S., well, two ways to weaken the, the U.S. are to increasingly ensure, provoke discord within the American population that affects everything from trying to get legislation passed. Uh, I think if if Congress essentially breaks down, has a hard time passing legislation, the American population is very divisive against itself. That, I think, is a form of weakening. If the Russians can encourage a greater divide between the United States and its European allies, that has long been a Russian goal. It was during the Cold War is to exacerbate tensions between the U.S. and London between the U.S. and France, between the U.S. and Brussels, where the European Union is, or the U.S. and Berlin with the Germans, to exploit divisions so that it's harder for those countries as a block to push back against Russia when it operates in countries like Crimea and Ukraine and holds it, or Ukraine more broadly, or Syria. So this is the Russian objective, is to weak in the U.S. And I think that is what is motivating them to get involved in this kind of activity. And again, you know, there were Russian trolls and bots on the Roseanne Barr issue that came up recently with Donald Trump and, and her firing. Uh, there were Russians involved in the Russian trolls involved on both sides of the Parkland shootings in, in Florida. It's really an effort to sow divisiveness to weaken America both domestically and overseas. 
Uh, it's. I think that's pretty obvious by what we've been seeing in media and when you just, on just about anyone's personal social media accounts, the number of hardcore right or hardcore left and the inability just to listen to one another of opinion or where they get some facts. So it touches, I think, every American, uh, especially since they're going through so much social media. You know, I had, I had just really one more thing I wanted to ask you. Um, is there something that maybe we didn't touch upon in this conversation or something that's upcoming that we really need to be paying attention to for the Homeland Security professional to start focusing on some threat that we aren't really focused on today? Well, I mean, one thing on this side we touched on, but I wanted to say a little bit more on is Americans increasingly have resorted to alternative sources of media to get their information. Many don't go to traditional newspapers. They don't go to traditional sources. I mean, in the past, Americans may have gone to some of the major news networks, television news networks, or they would have gone to the traditional newspapers, either ones that were slightly right-leaning, at least their editorial pages were slightly right-leaning, like the Wall Street Journal, or slightly left-leaning, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, or maybe major news magazines, including foreign ones like The Economist. Um, they've generally gone towards finding sources of information that they feel more comfortable with. So left-leaning ones if they're on the left, right-leaning ones if they're on the right. And then alternative sources. Maybe they'll get their information from Twitter or Telegram forums that they're on. And the problem is those are generally terrible places for getting information because there's not a lot of fact-checking that goes on with many of those sources like Instagram or Twitter. Um, they're people's opinions. They're not facts. And I think what people have to be increasingly careful about is that if that's where people are getting information, then the U.S. population will be vulnerable to being exploited by foreign adversaries or criminal organizations. And I think we've got to be very, very careful, including in schools, to educate our children about where are the sources of information that you're getting your data from? Are you looking at multiple sides of an issue, not just feeling comfortable with where you sit politically? Because unless we start to be a little bit more careful about what kind of information we're getting, where it's coming from, whether the numbers and the data are fact-checked and, and accurate, and again, where the sources are, we are going to be vulnerable to being used by foreign governments like the Russians and domestic ones as well, including criminal organizations. And I think, you know, that that is a dangerous homeland security environment to be operating in. Wow. Well, I, I really appreciate your insight on that. And I hope listeners here take that to heart. On a final note, is there a way that our listeners, if they needed to get a hold of you or maybe purchase your book, how can we get a hold of you? Well, I'm the Harold Brown Chair and the Director for the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. All my contact information is publicly available on the CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies website. So my phone number's on there, my email is on there. I also teach, obviously, at the Center for Homeland Defense in Monterey, so happy to see people here in Monterey as well. The easiest way to get a hold of the book is, is to order it on Amazon. Well, thank you so much. And again, I want to let you know how much I appreciate your, your knowledge and your background within this entire topic and truly appreciate the time you've taken to speak with me today. Seth, 
thank you very much. And I'll talk to you probably in Monterey. Sounds good. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a really, really important subject. And I think increasingly uh, lots of Homeland Security implications. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. So there you have it, Dr. Seth Jones. What I found interesting in this conversation is how history tends to repeat itself. Directly from the pages of the Soviet playbook, we're watching Russia engage in an all-out assault against our democracy and cultivating the growing divide amongst the American people. We have moved into a disruptive culture where social media dictates a virtual world as fact, a narrative sown in discord and half-truths, and a campaign against our democracy and our people exacerbating the growing chasm within our social and political fabric. My concern with the partisan politics and rhetoric from those elected to lead this great country is the loss of focus on their mission, a mission to place America's security and prosperity first. I think those tasked with protecting this country should reflect and learn from our history to take action against those who would see us fail. This episode of Homeland, the podcast, meant to look into the Reagan administration's handling of the Soviet propaganda machine. Instead, our conversation shed light on the lack of active measures to combat the cyber threats from not only Russia, but other countries like China and Iran. If this topic interests you, or you'd like to delve into political and social influence from both the CIA and Soviet Union in Poland during the 1980s, I'd encourage you to go to Amazon and get Seth's book, A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War Struggle in Poland. This book is available through Amazon on September 11th, 2018. And one last item. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, we ask that you share our show with your friends and peers. Also, subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you on iTunes, CastBox, or whichever platform you use. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host, and until our next episode, take care.